welcome to Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. I'm your host, Tom Masters, and our guest today is Dr. Thomas Burney. He's a psychiatrist and the founding president of the Association for Pre- and Perinatal Psychology and Health. He's also the author of the best-selling book, The Secret Life of the Unborn Child, and the recently released book, The Embodied Mind. Welcome. Thank you, Tom, and thank you, Thomas, for being here. So we just did a podcast with Thomas that um, this is the second part of the series, and he is a psychiatrist. He's very experienced. He's still in practice um, seeing adults. He's published 47 scientific papers, and again, he's a founding editor-in-chief of the society that he's going to tell me the name of. The Association for Pre- and Perinatal Psychology and Health. So the first podcast, we talked about, you know, the role of stress on the um, unborn child, the first couple of years of life, and how resilient the brain is, how the nervous system works. And I think most of the audience knows my lines that we're just a unit. You cannot run a body without a brain and vice versa. It's a very bi-directional process. And I've been involved with a group that for a couple of years has been meeting twice a month. And I'm an orthopedic surgeon, I think in terms of structure and bone spurs and all sorts of stuff, but really 90% of the symptoms in the body are from physiology. And what physiology is, is life, it's motion, it's harness energy, it's genetic expression, it's phenotypes, it's basically how does your body respond to your environment in a way to stay alive, that's energy and life. And Thomas and I have a friend in common, Dr. Bruce Lipton, who encapsulates a lot of big concepts. And what I'm excited about is that I, we, he and I have come to very similar conclusions about lots of different things from completely different perspectives. So it's always interesting to sort of come down to some core concepts on a very complex topic, which to me means there's gonna be some things to keep looking at more closely. So the concept I want to really dive into this second podcast is the idea that you don't hardly need your brain to actually stay alive. I mean, a lot of creatures don't even have consciousness, so to speak. They have reactions to the environment. And humans have what's called a neocortex that gives us consciousness and language, which gives us an advantage and some disadvantages also. But anyway, I just like to... um, you know, Thomas has worked with neonates, prenatal work. He's done lots of paper and research. But um, I guess I'll let you talk since it's your podcast. <laughs> so you have some very interesting insights about how each cell is part of this whole process of reading the environment and keeping us alive. Yes. Uh, you know, um, we mentioned the fact that uh, at, at the beginning of my career, I studied at Harvard. Uh, and, 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 I, and I loved Boston, and I loved Harvard, and so I still, uh, I still receive um, special health reports from Harvard, Medical, from Harvard Medical School, and I will just, just tell you the difference between what sort of classical academic scientists think and where I think science should be today. So, March the, March the 8th, 2022, I got this report um, and it said, pay attention to your gut-brain connection. It may contribute to your anxiety 
and digestion problems. And I thought to myself, this is great. Harvard has finally, you know, seen, seen the light. So, but then the letter goes on like this. The gastrointestinal tract is sensitive to emotion, anger, anxiety, sadness, elation, all of these feelings and others can trigger symptoms in the gut. So what we have here, it's all about the effect of the brain on the gut. It's all about top down, nothing about signals from the gut to the brain. In other words, from the bottom up. And yet today we have so much research, so much research, and we can go into that. Uh, we have so much research that shows that the gut bacteria are incredibly important. Uh, just to give you one example, for example, <laughs> one example, for example, um, many of the drugs, the psychotropic drugs, the drugs that are given against depression or anxiety, about one third of them work, uh, achieve what they are supposed to achieve. One third of them have no effect and one third of them actually make people uh, iller, sicker than they were before. Now, why is that? Nobody knows. Yes, we do. Uh, these people at Harvard don't know or appear not to know, but the reason for that is the gut bacteria. There are certain gut, gut bacteria which destroy these psychotropic drugs. And so in order to really know which drugs, and it's not just psychotropic drugs, uh, it's, it's all kinds of drugs that achieve their aim because the gut bacteria cooperate with them or do not achieve their aim because of the wrong gut bacteria. So the future, the future of medicine really lies in being able to, to actually diagnose, uh, to detect uh, and, and find out uh, the kinds of bacteria that we have and then give drugs accordingly. So uh, this idea that, you know, it, it's just anxiety that, which, creates, uh, which creates ulcers or high blood pressure or any of these other illnesses that we have is very wrong, very wrong. Yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely right. And again, there's so many ways of saying this and there's, you know, I would say tens of thousands of research papers that are all saying the same thing is that we're a unit we have to I mean, it's interesting to me, I don't know a lot about, I'm not an expert on the gut at all. I just know that if you look at human evolution, at one point, planet Earth had only bacteria. That was it. And the way humans evolved or, or mammals evolved is we had to make a truce with the bacteria. So if you look at us, we have this from the oral pharynx down to the rectum, we have a tube that's full of bacteria and the human body is actually in cooperation with this bacterial part of us is in part of every one of us and the gut creates chemicals that we need to stay alive i mean isn't serotonin a gut chemical well it, it it is produced most of the serotonin most of the serotonin cells most of the serotonin in our bodies are created in in the in the gastrointestinal tract everybody thinks it's in the brain no, yes, there are serotonin cells in the brain also, but 
the large preponderance of serotonin is produced in the gut. And again, a lot of it will depend on the gut bacteria. If you have the right kind of back gut bacteria, you'll have lots of serotonin in your body. You will not get depressed. But again, this is not something that has been sort of uh, emphasized by pharmaceutical companies because they like to you know, give you drugs that they tell you, you know, will act on your brain. But it would be much better to give people drugs that are going to um, help the gut bacteria produce more serotonin from the cells lining the gastrointestinal tract. So basically, human life has made a truce with bacteria. It's a very symbiotic, bidirectional relationship. So I, I don't know how to say this very clearly. I'm actually been struggling with this for a while. But as you mentioned in the first podcast, every single cell in our body can stay alive on its own if it's given the right nutrients. We know that. Then you have 30 trillion cells in the human body, and I guess almost as equally many bacteria in the gut. So we basically are this huge petri dish of cells with skin being the covering. So your point is, we use the word bottom up, that means every cell in the body has a part in keeping us alive. Absolutely. They cooperate with each other, they signal with each other. And so it's not just the brain as a command center, the brain is just one part of a massive system of cells that knows how to cooperate with each other to stay alive. How, how did I do there? You did very well. I just, and you are right about the 30 trillion uh, cells in our bodies, and there are 38 trillion microbes in the gut. We have, we have five pounds, five pounds of the microbiome, which are the bacteria and the viruses that we carry around in our guts. And it is so incredibly interesting. Uh, I mean, you know, you, you could spend a lifetime studying the microbes in the gut because uh, they just play such an important part in our lives. May I give you one example very quickly? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I'm just this whole process you've been presenting is very fascinating to me. Like research has shown, for example, that older people, older people do well when they are socially active, when they interact with other people. Right. Older people don't do well at all. I'm sorry, all so you, you cut out there for a second. Could you repeat that? Isolated, lonely. Lonely people die young, get sick, die young. Right. People who have a social circle around them, who are involved with other people, uh, live happier and healthier and longer lives. Right. Researchers looked at their gut microbiome. And what do they find? They find that it's different. Uh, people who are isolated, have a very different gut microbiome than people who are socially active. Now, we don't know which comes first. We don't know whether it's the social isolation which changes the microbiome or whether it's the microbiome that leads to social isolation. But we know that the two coexist and the chances are that it's probably, you know, a self-fulfilling kind of a circle, you know, it's, it's a reverberating circle that the more that if you have a more limited microbiome, somehow it affects your ability to interact with other people. You become more isolated 
And then of course your microbiome changes and so one thing sort of leads to another. But there is just one example of the importance of the microbiome. Right, interesting. So can you explain to the audience about the, we use the word top-down versus bottom-up. And just to be really clear, could you explain those two terms to the audience? Sure, sure. Uh, top-down means just what I was telling you, for example, about the Harvard Medical Letter, you know, which, which blames everything on our cognition and our feelings. So if I feel stressed, uh, then I am producing more stress hormones, which then affect uh, my GI tract and produce more uh, acid and I will eventually get an ulcer or they affect my blood vessels and I will get high blood pressure, things of that nature. But so that's top down. Everything is being sort of pushed from the top down into the rest of the body. Okay. But bottom up, let's, let, let's look at Alzheimer's. Everybody knows that Alzheimer's is, seems, to be, seems to be due to some plaques which are formed in, which in, people think that they are formed in the brain. And so uh, all the pharmaceutical companies and everybody is focusing on how to prevent the formation of plaques in the brain. But actually, actually, uh, researchers have, have, have found in, in some places in, in the world, uh, I think it was in Australia, um, that actually the liver produces plaques. The, the liver. I'm sorry, the liver produces plaque? Yes, yes the liver. Okay. Did not know that. Yeah, I know. I know. Hardly anybody does. Um, I, I, I would have to look up the, uh, the, the, the actual reference, but I do have it somewhere. Um, so it's the liver that produces the plaques and from the liver, they are then transferred to the, to the brain. So, okay, I got it. Um, so this comes, this comes from a University of Bentley. Yes, I was, I was right. University of Bentley in Australia, where they found that amyloid protein made in the liver can cause neurodegeneration in the brain. Since the protein is thought to be a key contributor to development of Alzheimer's disease, the results suggest that the liver may play an important role in the onset or progression of the disease. So here again, you know, is our lack of emphasis on anything below the neck. And no emphasis is given, for example, in this case to the liver and how the liver produces amyloid plaques and how then that is transferred from the bottom up through the circulation to the brain. So that's a perfect example. And there are millions and millions of others. Right, right, interesting. So, Again, we mentioned this in the third podcast about the, the term mind-body doesn't make much sense. It's just, we're just one solid unit trying to you know, stay alive. And of course, for every living organism, the entire responsibility of the human body, or, or, or I'm sorry, or the living body is just to stay alive. 
and you go into fight or flight to stay alive, then you go into rest and digest or safety to just gain enough fuel to go out, go out and fight another day. Mm. So by definition, the way evolution works, if you're not a cell or organism that has a capacity to defend itself, you don't survive. Mm. So every cell in your body is actually out there for the same purpose to help each other survive. Yes, yes. And what I, what I would like to say before we run out of time is that the mind, which has often, if not always, been looked on as a product of the brain. Um, again, academics refer to the mind as an epiphenomenon of the brain. And by epiphenomenon, it's the same epi as in epigenetics. Uh, so it is a function of the brain. Just like urine is a function of the kidneys, the, the, the mind is a function of the brain, which of course is ridiculous um, because the mind is in no way comparable to urine. Um, is you know, one you can measure and see and do experiments with, I mean urine, and the mind you cannot measure. So because I say embodied mind, it's also important to realize that the mind is dependent on the whole body, not just the brain. And it may be, and this is where Bruce Lipton sort of comes in, it may be a lot more than just uh, a function of all the cells in the bodies, but that is not my area of specialty. So I- I'm, I sorry, I'm sorry, say that again. I didn't quite understand the implication of what you just said. Okay, the implication is that the mind has often been thought of as a product of the brain. Right. I am saying that is wrong if it, it has to be seen as the product of the whole body, every cell, every tissue, the heart, the gut, the brain, the liver, the kidneys, the lungs, it all contributes to the mind. Okay. I'm saying that the mind is dependent. I don't want to say a product because I don't like that expression. So I will just say it is dependent on the whole body and it may be more than just part of the body. It may be more. It may have, it may have a spiritual element to it that I am not equipped to discuss because I just don't know. Like I, I become a, an agnostic when it comes to spirituality. Right. Uh, um, I'm not an atheist, but I am an agnostic. So um, I just simply admit to not knowing enough about that part of the mind, but I know enough to say with conviction that the mind is not just a function of the brain, that it is a function of the whole body. And that's why I call the book, The Embodied Mind. Well, I mean, that's why also, I mean, the brain does not send out signals, um, how do I say this? I mean, the brain's interpreting sensory input and then making decisions and sending out signals of how to survive. So the brain doesn't function without sensory input. And that sensory input is what you would call from the bottom up, whether it's from the bottoms of your feet or your gut or your heart. And um, let me finish up with just one example about, you mentioned with heart transplant patients, that some interesting things take place. 
Oh God, it's it's incredibly interesting. Uh, it's one of the last chapters in my book uh, because an, a number of heart patients um, who who have had who have had transplants, who have had new hearts put into them, uh, without knowing anything about their donor, uh, start acting in ways which reflect the donor's personality. Really. And so again, it's it's described in my book uh, how you know one 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 woman, for example, who was a vegetarian all her life and also was only interested in in sexually in in same sex in in other women. Uh, when she got this heart transplant, uh, she stopped being a vegetarian. She started eating meat. She developed an interest in the opposite sex. Whole her whole her whole personality changed and wow. was able to find out eventually, eventually she was able to find out that she got the heart of, I think an 18 year old guy who died in a motorcycle accident. And she often complained, she often complained of feeling this tremendous pressure in her chest, pain, pain in her chest. And he died in the motorcycle accident uh, and his chest was, you know, badly damaged. So there, wow. uh, there are a lot of there are a lot of um, experiences like that described in the literature. But you see, your average cardiac surgeon will not admit to that because it just complicates their life. I spoke to one the other day. I said, "Do you ever tell your patients that they may have changes in personality following a heart transplant?" Oh no. Oh no, I would never say that. But, but, but do they actually notice the personality changes? I mean, is this something that cardiac surgeons actually notice? Well, I, I wrote a blog about that on uh, Psychology Today. Uh, okay. And there is a blog on heart transplants. Uh, okay. You're really welcome to look at that. Uh, okay. And um, I, I just had an email from a man uh, just a couple of days ago who said, that he read my blog and that he did have a change in personality. And uh, when he complained about that to his cardiac surgeon, he just kind of, you know, shook his head and he said, oh, it's just, it's just the effect of the drugs that you had, you know, uh, and it, it, will, it will go away. Interesting. Well, Thomas, thank you very, very much for being on the podcast. Um, we may be doing some more in the, here in the near future. Um, there's lots of things we just didn't even come close to touching on. So um, he's written a book, Dr. Thomas Verney, V-E-R-N-Y. Um, he's a psychiatrist still in practice. It's called The Embodied Mind. But what I'm excited about, he really reflects a lot of the really recent neuroscience over the last 10 years about human consciousness, chronic disease, um, you wonder why this is on a chronic pain podcast. Chronic pain is one of the chronic diseases that's affected by all these different variables that we're talking about. So, um, Thomas, what's your website? My website is thomasrvernymd.com. Do you say it one more time for us, please? Thomas, T-H-O-M-A-S, R, like Robert. Verney, V-E-R-N-Y-M-D, medical doctor, at uh, .com. Got it. Okay. So he's got a very interesting perspective. I think he clearly is reflecting the latest in neuroscience. And 
both of us know there's so such a complex problem that we'll just keep be we'll both keep learning a lot over the next um, few years. I mean, it's a very exciting world to be in right now. So again, thank you very, very much. And uh, it's been great to meet you today. Thank you. And I feel exactly the same way. And I very much appreciate your interest in my work. And uh, let's meet again sometime. Absolutely. Thank you. Bye-bye. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Thomas Verney, for being on the show today and for sharing examples of the important and revolutionary new concept of the embodied mind. I'm your host, Tom Masters, reminding you to be back next week for another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. And in the meantime, be sure to visit the website at www.backincontrol.com. Thanks for listening today, and join us next week for Back in Control Radio.